Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Loose Head Podcast with me, Jeff Neville. Today, we have Jamie Cudmore on the line. Jamie, how are you getting on? I'm very well, sir. Thank you. How are you? Not so bad. How are you dealing over in Canada with the whole situation at the moment? Oh, to be honest, um, you know, where, where we're based, uh, at Shawnigan Lake on Vancouver Island on the, on the extreme west coast of Canada, we, uh, we're very, very fortunate to be in a place where we've got a lot of space, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of nature where there's a lot, not a lot of people around. So, you know, my kids can go out in the yard and we can run around in the woods and not come in contact with anybody really. So, you know, we are staying around home, uh, and, uh, we're on the lake here too. So if the kids get too riled up, we just fire them out in the canoe and send them, send them fishing. Happy days. I just wanted to talk to you today about, uh, your playing career, your coaching career so far and um everything kind of surrounding that so if it's all right with you we'll just jump straight in yeah yeah no um i'm happy to happy to answer any anything any queries you guys have you stated in your book that you got a love of rugby from your dad you were out logging when you were 16 and you were asked to play in those early days in canada playing rugby i'd say you learned your trade quite quickly yeah so um you know my my father immigrated to to Canada back in the mid seventies and uh and I was born uh shortly after um and uh him uh growing up in the south of England and then uh playing um i guess kind of rugby around where he grew up and then going on to Cambridge and playing and uh, and finishing his medical degree there and and playing throughout his uh, university days um you know he was always a big big lover of the game. Um, he, uh, he obviously wanted his boys to play. I'm, uh, I'm uh, the oldest of three brothers. And, uh, so he, um, he was really excited for us to play uh, as, as we were growing up, but, uh, you know, growing up in, uh, in, in rural, uh, Squamish, which is kind of a mountain town in the, in the West coast of Canada near, near Whistler, um, you know, we were, we were, he had more and more opportunities to go play hockey or go skiing than uh, than play any any type of field sports besides uh, baseball and soccer. Did rugby offer you an escape from maybe some earlier trouble in your youth? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think uh, you know, as a, as kind of you know, fourteen, fifteen years old, I I wasn't too interested in school, and uh, things were uh, you know getting a bit choppy there. So I, I was definitely looking for other ways to. Uh, to get rid of that kind of that that negative energy, and um, you know, uh, started working the bush uh, in the summers uh, during that time. Um, and uh, there was uh, a local guy, Greg Richmond, who uh, is a kind of a local legend around Squamish in uh, in logging circles and then in, in rugby circles as well. He um, he kind of offered me uh, the opportunity that say if you don't want to work Saturday why don't you uh, why don't you come out and uh, and play rugby and it wasn't so much that we didn't want to work Saturday because we were, we were getting pretty well paid for 15 16 years old and uh, he said uh, you guys uh, instead of uh, working all, all week and then Saturday night going off and blowing all your money why don't you come uh, come play rugby with us and the fights and all the rest of it we heard you guys getting into you'll uh, you'll probably just get all that energy out on the field so that's what we did. Uh, my uh, my line mate, my buddy Dave, and and I, we 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 turned out for the rugby team on the weekend and uh, went out and played Gibson's, which is a local uh, a local small town uh, on the other side of the water from uh, from us. And uh, we went over and played there, and uh, and we loved it. We loved it. It was absolutely outstanding, and really really enjoyed uh, our time. You speak very fondly at that time in your book. What were your favorite memories of playing rugby in Canada at fifteen, sixteen, seventeen? 
definitely that first uh, the first training we had was a Thursday evening, and uh, we were at the local school in Squamish, where um, you know there's not too much in terms of infrastructure, uh, lights and change rooms and all the rest of it. So everybody's kind of changing out the back of their pickup trucks or their cars, and, and we got out there kind of at dusk, and um, we were pretty fortunate because uh, my second row partner, Billy Kearns, his, uh, his mother was a janitor at the school. So um, on the Tuesday, Thursday nights, she would leave the uh, the second floor uh, of the school's lights on while she was cleaning. And that would give us enough light to kind of flood down onto the field. And we used kind of one half of the 50-meter the line of, of this field so, uh, so we could get in our, get in our training. And, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, kind of just what you had to had to deal with um, for, for rugby back in those days because there wasn't too much in terms of, uh, as I said, infrastructure. And uh, so that was that was it. That's, that's how it started. And then um, going into the first game uh, over in Gibson's, as I said, um, we we had a pretty good aftermatch where um, – their uh, their their old president Billy he, uh, he called in the the two rookies. He said to Greg, he said, "All right, give us give us your two rookies. They've got to they've got to run the plank." And uh, the Gibson's clubhouse is this beautiful clubhouse set on, above the beach in uh, in Gibson's, which is not far from Squamish in Vancouver. And uh, out in front of the clubhouse, they've got uh, these uh, big log booms. So you can imagine a rectangle of logs attached together with about three logs going out and then about six logs going uh, parallel to the beach and then another three logs coming in. So it's kind of like a little sheltered swimming area. And the, uh, the race for the rookies was uh, you had to down a beer run around the, the logs out in the water, with, obviously without falling in, and then uh, chug another beer at the end, and the time stopped. And uh, their little uh, their little trap in this uh, race was uh, they had a, pie, a, size of, a pair of size 7 or a pair of size 14 cork boots. So for those who don't know, cork boots are uh, similar to, uh, you know, your local work boots for construction, but then you've got, uh, you've got studs in the bottom of it similar to, like, uh, golf shoes. So that you don't slip off the the, uh, the logs, the slippery logs, and uh, we kind of laughed. We said, "Oh, don't worry." Greg had the uh, the crummy the work truck out front, and uh, we had our boots in the back, so we threw on our own boots. And uh, they all thought, "Oh no, this is this is no good. You guys are ringers." And we uh, we chopped the beer, flew around the uh, flew around the log boom, high fived in the middle, and got to the end, chopped another beer, and we I think we broke about four or five seconds off the record. So uh, we thought this is it. Rugby's uh, rugby's the game for us. After a couple of years, you moved over to Auckland off your own back. What encouraged that move? Um, so that was um, the year after uh, I played. I played with Squamish. I moved. Uh, I moved down to North Vancouver and uh, enjoyed my club. Uh, now the Caplanos uh, in North Vancouver. The walls were kind of closing in on me in Squamish, as, as most small towns do for for you know kind of young young teenagers that've got a lot of energy. Um, so I moved down to the city, got a job in construction, and uh, and started started playing a better better level of rugby with a lot of guys that kind of the similar age as myself. So I really enjoyed it, and um, I was working uh, I was working building houses with a guy named Bob Remner who uh, uh, had just come back from New Zealand. Uh, he'd gone down there. He'd been uh, working in construction as well for quite a few years and playing some good quality rugby in the uh, North Harbour competition of Auckland. 
and uh, he said, you know, you've got a, you got a bit about you. Maybe uh, if you really want to give it a give it a go, uh, why don't you go down to New Zealand this summer? Uh, well, well, our summer, their winter, and um, and and play some better quality rugby and see see what you can do with it. I said, well, geez, all right, sounds sounds like fun. So I sold everything I had. I had a pickup, a TV, a few kind of knickknacks. I sold all that, and I uh, bought myself a ticket down to down to Auckland and uh, took off the, the next week. Showed up, uh, showed up the Saturday morning uh, at about 6:30. No bags. My bags got lost somewhere between Vancouver and LA and Auckland. And uh, bought a pair of boots, and I played the same afternoon. So um, you know, it just kind of kept going from from Squamish to Vancouver, and then down to Auckland, and kept getting these great opportunities. And I, I kind of seized them, and uh, and things uh, just kind of developed from that. Those opportunities in New Zealand eventually led you to Clenetley, and you ended up playing with the Scarlets for a while then as well. Yeah, it was uh, from uh, from being in New Zealand. Everything went quite quickly. Um, I was uh, I was asked to, to come back and be a part of the Pacific Pride Development Academy, which is, funnily enough, the uh, the program that I now run with Rugby Canada. It was led by David Clark, our ex uh, national team coach. Um, and it was basically a, uh, a seven-day-a-week environment um, preparing you for professional rugby. Um, at that time, I still didn't really realize that there was, you know, opportunities to play professionally. Um, but, um, you know, being in that program definitely set me up for uh, success in the future, just around, you know, simple things such as being on time and how to train and preparing my body to, uh, to take the load of, uh, of training uh, week in, week out with games uh, on the weekend. What are your best memories of your time in Wales? Well, so after that, um, that tour down, uh, down, down under, coming back home, playing with the Pride, and then uh, the following year getting, uh, getting called up to the Canadian team and getting an opportunity through a friend of mine, Pat Dunkley, who was uh, actually playing in, in Pontypool at that time. He said, there's some opportunities here in Wales for, uh, for you know, new, new internationals. And um, I was also very fortunate to have a, a British passport through my father. So that helped in terms of, um, you know, work visas and all the rest of it, you know, being almost kind of local. And uh, I got an opportunity to go uh, sign with Finesse. Um, and uh, I just remember thinking, like, last year I was playing uh, in club club competitions on the West Coast of Canada with, uh, you know, quite a few Canadian internationals who had come come back and were, and were keeping the standard quite high. But I walked into the into the change room there, and uh, you know, I walk in, I almost bump into Scott Cornell and Stephen Jones and uh, John Davies, Lee Davies, like all these guys who are basically like the Lions and the Welsh team. And, and I'm thinking, Jesus, how the hell did I sh- show up here? Um, so it was um, it was quite a quite a tumultuous time. There's a lot of stuff going on. I was trying to learn a lot of really fast and make my mark and. Um, I uh, really, really enjoyed it. You know, being being uh, around players like that at, at that at that age was uh, a huge learning curve for me. Um, and uh, and I was getting good, uh, consistent games with. If I didn't get uh, picked in the squad uh, with the Tenefsi squad on the weekend, I was loaned out to a Division One club called uh, Sandovri, and uh, had a really, really good, good, uh, good 
history and uh, good standard of play uh, up in West Wales and uh, enjoyed myself immensely, you know, because uh, every weekend I was playing, regardless whether I was playing with Thandubri, which was a really good standard, or taking that step up to play for Smethley uh, on a Friday or a Saturday. And, uh, you know, I was really, really enjoying my rugby. You said that you sold all your belongings in order to go to Auckland. And then you said just there, you know, that you wanted, you, you when you walked into the, the clubhouse and you saw all these Welsh players, you were thinking, oh God, like, how did I get here? But you must have had that self-belief in the first place, you know, to go to New Zealand and then to go to Wales. Um, yeah, I think I think I did. Um, I, I've never really kind of thought much about it, about kind of how it, how it, it all kind of came about. Um, uh, I've always taken uh, took a piece of my uh, my mother's advice, which uh, she'll be very happy to hear because a, a lot of it I didn't heed at all. <laughs> but uh, she she always told me that if you ever go traveling uh, and somebody offers you to go somewhere or to go experience something or go try something or go check something out. Majority of times say yes because you never know what'll happen, um, and that's basically what happened over the you know those kind of formative years of Squamish, Vancouver, Auckland, and then over into Europe where you know I kept getting these opportunities. People saying, "Hey, uh, do you think you you want to try this, or does this sound like something that's interesting?" And I and I always pretty much said yes. I said, "Yeah, let's give it a go." Um, and then uh, you know I, through those opportunities, um, you know obviously. You gotta you gotta work hard and, and and try to try to earn your place and and I was always of the mindset that I wanted to dominate everywhere I went and at the beginning that obviously wasn't very that wasn't possible because I was still young I was still learning but um, I still had that mindset that I I, I had the uh, you know I had the skills to be there with those other people even though that I was still quite green I uh, I figured that if I if I kept working hard enough that I'd uh, I'd eventually find my place. You went from playing in Canada to New Zealand to Clenetli and then all within just a couple of years, suddenly you're in Grenoble in France as well. That must have been quite a whirlwind as well. Yeah, so um, it's 2002 when I was with uh, Thanasi um, and then got called back uh, that summer into the Canadian squad, got my first cap with Canada. Um, and then coming into uh, 2003 was picked up to the uh, to the Canadian uh, World Cup squad. So... Everything, as I said, every year, every second year, there was a, there was a new opportunity, and I was very fortunate to be uh, called into that squad. After the World Cup, um, well, actually during the World Cup, I was talking a lot with uh, with Mike James, who uh, another Canadian uh, second row who was uh, had been playing in Perpignan and had just signed in Paris. And uh, I asked him about the different opportunities in France, and he said, uh, he said, oh, looking at your playing style, Jamie, you'll love France, and they'll love you. So... He started chatting with uh, his agent, and uh, who was now became mine, and uh, he uh, started looking around. and uh, I met her talking with the uh, the manager at the time, Willie Talfifanua, who was the father of, uh, of Roman, and uh, and uh, you know some, himself uh, a good uh, a good professional player, and his boys now internationals. Um, and he said, listen, there's an opportunity here in Grenoble. Uh, what, what do you think? And uh, I chatted with Mike a little bit and I uh, chatted with my parents and everybody thought it was a good idea. And uh, I thought, all right, well, they're going to they're gonna pay me money to play rugby. And last year I didn't even think it was possible. And now they're actually throwing some good money at me. So I thought, well, it's a hell of a lot better than working up in the bush in Squamish. So I figured uh, let's, let's give it a go. What was that Grenoble environment like that you joined? It 
was it was it was interesting. It was interesting because um, you know it was professional in the sense that sure you got paid at the end of the month, but in terms of the infrastructure and the training and um, you know nutrition and everything that you know I'd been very accustomed to in North America in those days, you know in the kind of late nineties, early two thousands, things were still quite professional here, and I think quite a bit further forward than a lot of um, structures in Europe. I think just through our uh, um, just through our kind of being around the NHL, the NFL, all those different you know high level sports, uh, the level of professionalism even at lower levels is is quite high. Um, and then for me to go into a professional entity uh, like FCG uh, thirty eight, uh, the Alps team, and uh, you know the guys were saying I'm not supposed to take creatine, I'm not supposed to take protein. Um, I got a blood test when I first got there and they said your testosterone levels are too high. Have you been taking drugs? Like all this stuff and I'm kind of laughing. I go, what are you talking about? I, I, I just got, te- we all got tested about 15 times last summer in lead up to the World Cup. We all got tested after the All Blacks game in the, in the World Cup as well. Nobody got, um, uh, got tested positive and of course they wouldn't have because I, I didn't know anybody that, uh, that are in the Canadian team were doing any type of drugs or anything. And, um, you know, I'd naturally, myself and my brothers, we have high testosterone levels anyway. Um, but it was really, really funny to see how the, 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 uh, the, the French teams thought, you know, oh, you gotta, you gotta take a lot more time off and you, you can't take uh, protein. You shouldn't be doing weights the day before games and stuff. And I'm thinking, you guys are, this is the dark ages. But, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of other things which are, which are amazing and, uh, and really, really good in terms of rugby as well. I picked up a lot and, uh, you know, really was really starting to enjoy my, uh, enjoy my rugby, even though the, uh, the communication was still quite difficult. You then left Grenoble and you moved to Claremont, where you spent 11 years, which is a huge amount of time in any profession. The first question I suppose I want to ask you is, what changes did you see from when you first entered Claremont to when you left? Well, I think the, the biggest thing would have been the, uh, again, again the, the professionalism. I showed up at Claremont in, in 2004, 2005 um, with, uh, you know, a, an amazing team, like Pierre Mignoni, Elvis Vermeulen, Aurelien uh, uh, Rougerie, Tony Marsh, uh, you know, you got Mario Ledesma at, at Hooker, Martin Skelzo at tight end prop, uh, Thibaut Priva in second row. Um, you know, you've got like these amazing players from around the world and, and more importantly, a lot of really, really good French players. Guys would kind of show up at home games. You know, for the big games, they, everybody would show up. And then you'd go on the road and, you know, half the guys would show up. The other guys would be sleeping. And I really didn't understand this whole mindset of home and away. Um, and then when Vern came to the club the following year, all of a sudden we, we won the little European Cup and we're in the, we're in the finals. So it kind of shows the level of professionalism that was needed and that attention to detail that we didn't have in the first year I was there to the year after where we finally started getting dragged into uh, into the professional uh, era where our nutrition got monitored and our weight got monitored and the load got monitored and everything, even at, at, at those times, was uh, was really starting to get pushed to the limit. Um, and, you know, the, the results uh, speak for themselves. I'm reading a book at the moment, Confessions of a Rugby Mercenary, and the author of that book, well, he was playing with Montpellier at the time of writing, but he talks about on the pitch, there's, you know, there's punches, there's eye gouging, there's all these different things. In the dressing room beforehand, there was, you know, 
the players were whipping themselves up into a frenzy. There was headbutting, punches. Yeah. Did that happen with Claremont? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The first few years, I remember being in uh, my first couple of years in, in, in Grenoble. Um, uh, I, I went in and cleared uh, I cleared a guy off a ruck uh, about five meters from their line. We were, we were pushing to score a try, and uh, I cleared him out quite well. And then uh, he, he got – he was underneath me, and he, and he, he ripped up and, and put his finger two digits in my eye. I thought, geez, what the hell is going on here? So I, I lit him up pretty good, and I remember looking down um, – Realizing, man, I, I think I know that guy. I've seen him somewhere before. Anyway, I didn't think much of it. Um, we continued on. We played. We scored. Um, and I went back, and I had just come on. And uh, Jacques Delma was our coach uh, at that time. Uh, who's uh, He's coached a lot in Toulon and in Paris. And, uh, and Jacques was a very animated guy. Loved to loved to kind of talk. And he had a lot of different mannerisms. And he, uh, he, we weren't doing too well in the game before that and he said uh he said look uh, basically in french he's yelling at everybody in the video session he goes he goes nobody's you know pulling their finger out this is ridiculous and then all of a sudden we've got the sheriff comes on and bing bang boom and we score and so from the, from then on uh, in the grenoble squad i was known as the sheriff because uh it was jean-jacques krenka the loose head for uh, for france and for agen would put his finger in two two digits in my eye just because you know he was part of that old school and that's what guys did you know there was biting there was eye gouging there's you know all the kind of the dirty the dirty tricks uh were used and um you know it was uh it was definitely uh eye opener for me uh, excuse the pun but um it was uh <laughs> it was for me that's that's not how you that's not how you get into people you know um I think in, in Canada we're 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 growing up in, in a in a hockey mentality where if you wanna if you wanna fight you wanna go you're you're face to face and that's how it's done. Um, there's none of that kind of backhanded stuff where you're fish hooking somebody from the behind and the bottom of a rock when they can't defend themselves. Um, if you wanna have a go and uh, you wanna wanna have a bit of a, a rumble tumble, well by all means go for it, have fun and and then you shake hands after. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, the French guys uh, try to use a bit of the dark arts. What was the most bizarre thing you saw, either in the changing rooms or on the pitch? Oh, bizarre! Jeez, there's a, there's quite a few. Um, you know, some uh, I don't know if I can uh, if I can let loose on the podcast, but um, you know, there's there's some there's some real uh, some real bizarre guys and uh, some guys that are kind of in their own worlds. Like uh, Tony Marsh is one who's a, he's a good friend of mine and a consummate professional. Um, but he's the only guy I've ever played rugby with who didn't warm up with the team. He used to warm up in the hallway of the stadium, um, you know, before the game. And then he'd come out for really for the last kind of five minutes of the warm up, um, which I thought, I always thought kind of a little bit bizarre, but knowing Tony, that's, uh, that's where he could get himself right and get his head, get him his head in the right space. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he definitely, uh, it didn't suffer, uh, in his gameplay, uh, at all, but, um, that was something I definitely found a little peculiar. You said you earned the nickname, the sheriff throughout the years. I think it's fair to say you earned quite a few cards over your career yeah. and to the point where you named your white wine and red wine, yellow card and red card. Did you ever feel that you needed to take or keep that enforcer role? No, I, I, I 
it, it kind of it got blown out of proportion quite a bit, you know, over the years. And I, I definitely had a had a few years kind of in the, the mid two thousands uh, where it, it definitely stuck to me like glue. Um, I did a lot of work uh, with some sports psychologists on uh, on just trying to find ways to uh, better help the team because um, you know I think. The majority of the times, uh, as, as I said, as, as a youngster, I always wanted to dominate in everything that I did. And uh, somehow, uh, sorry, sometimes uh, that that need to dominate went uh, went over the line. Um, I like to think that it was always done face to face, but um, unfortunately, in, in rugby, that's uh, there's no there's no uh, there's no room for that anymore. Um, so you know. I learned a really, really good lesson from a uh, from a sports psychologist that said, uh, he said, the first thing he said to me, he said, um, he said, Jamie, I'm not going to tell you not to punch somebody. I'm actually going to say you can punch somebody, but you need to do 10 things first. You need to do 10 good carries and 10 good dominant tackles. And you'll find that if you do those 10 things and you're concentrated so much on doing well, those 20 things that you'll find yourself at the end of the game, having played a good game, being so concentrated on helping the team that uh, you won't have to deal with any of the kind of extracurricular stuff. And uh, that really kind of switched on a light in my brain where this guy's not telling me to not do something because I know it's not right. I know it's, it's not the, the, the proper way to act, but unfortunately, uh, with uh, with my kind of you know, with my reptilian brain reacting faster than any other parts of my brain in the in the in the heat of the battle, well, that's I don't I don't fight I, I fight. So you know, I was trying to canalize that as best I could to help the team, and uh, that's it's definitely true. There was uh, quite a few uh, occasions where it um, it got the better of me, and uh, and I uh, you know I, I received a few cards, a few unjustly, I might add, but uh, it's uh, it's something that I definitely worked on. And uh, the uh, at the end of the day, I was trying to help the team uh, as as best I could, and uh, and that's what I wanted to do: uh, make sure that we uh, we dominated, we won, and uh, we came out on top. Um, and by playing hard and uh, hard and fast. You were involved with Claremont when they won their first national title in 2010. How special a moment was that? Well, I can tell you it's it's one of my major memories uh, in my rugby career, um, especially being part of the uh, the three finals before that in, in 07, 08 and 09, where uh, we lost each one and, um, you know, Against against Perpignan, I think we could have done a lot of bet, a lot better the year before. The year before that, against uh, against Toulouse, uh, we we were clearly second best. And in 2007, we uh, we basically dropped the ball in the last five minutes uh, against Paris. Um, but um, you know, in 2010, we had we'd had a really good core group of players together for quite a few years, um, and I think there was a, a collective. Um, kind of realization that you know we knew what was needed to get to get over the line and get it done um and when we we did finally uh win the bouclier in, in 2010 it was uh man it was like uh the volcanoes had all erupted around claremont it was uh it was a huge event um everything from you know the week leading up to it going up to uh to paris two days early getting into the stadium the game, how everything went, 
um, then winning after and everything, just the party after <laughs> went for about a week and a half with uh, the train ride back to Clermont and the open top bus through town and about, you know, 150,000 people in the center square, just jumping up and down, going crazy. And, uh, you know, it was just a really memorable moment, you know, seeing, uh, seeing old, old fans of the, the club who've been supporters for 40, 50 years. And you just, driving by them and the open top bus and they're there tears streaming down their eyes just so happy to finally see the bouclier uh, the trophy as a, as it's called uh, in uh, in Claremont was uh, was really an amazing experience your time with Claremont ended on a very sour note the 2015 semi-final against Saracens you suffered a concussion uh, two weeks later versus Toulon in the final you played in that final you suffered a concussion teammates saw you vomiting in the dressing room but you still returned to play um yeah you also said that you suffered double digits number of head injuries or brain injuries and as a result you opened up a legal suit against claremont yeah well that's uh that's a that's a big one so um you know as you said 2015 uh semi-final the european cup against saracens and uh in saint etienne another huge event um Saint is not far from Clermont, so it's basically a home game for us. It's about forty-five minutes up the road, um, and just the the Chaudron, which is the the stadium uh, in Saint Etienne, is uh, it's very similar, like an English soccer stadium, very, very steep, very closed in, a lot of noise, and there's uh, there's probably about forty thirty-five thousand Clermont supporters and about you know maybe three four thousand Saracen supporters, so uh, you can imagine the noise in there, and uh, you know it's it's big big game, European Cup. My recollection, and definitely through seeing the video, I, I go flying into a into a ruck after a kick forward, and um, uh, myself and Billy Vonapola kind of come into the ruck at the exact same time, and uh, we just kind of clash heads, and uh, I uh, I get split open and get taken off for for blood sub, and the doctor sees that I'm uh, that I'm no good because I'm clearly concussed as well. Um, and he stitches me up and then puts me through an HIA. Uh, he says, uh, I'm no good for the HIA. You're done. So I'm obviously upset and I want to keep playing because I'm, I'm in no, no real mind to actually make that decision. But he's, uh, he's done the right thing and said, no, no, you're no good. So I kind of, I'm pissed off. I'm arguing with him and he says, no, no, that's it. You're done. Sit down, get your boots off. And he leaves the uh, change room. Um, so I'm kind of, sitting dejected in uh in my boots at the in the change room i take off one boot and i'm kind of just sitting there i'm you know mixed emotions i'm excited i'm sad i'm you know i'm pissed off i want to get out there and anyway i just kind of sit there and kind of take a few breaths and i guess a few minutes later the doctor comes running back in he says jamie jamie are you okay you okay do you feel better uh, Seb's no good. Seb Bahamina, my second row partner, he says, uh, Seb's no good. You got to come back on. And so, oh, yeah, sweet. I don't even think about it. I just, I do up my boot and I get back up and I, I go flying up back out there and I, I finish the game. Don't remember much <coughs> of the uh, of the second half. Anyway, I uh, managed to finish the game and we win. Um, I, go, uh, I go back in the change room. They do the HI2. After the game, um, deemed uh, that I had a concussion, I go back. Uh, we go back home. Um, 
on the bus with the boys. You know, everybody's excited. We're in the final in two weeks, and everybody's having a beer and having a good time. And, you know, I kind of had one beer and didn't even really finish it. Just feel really cloudy, really, like, highly symptomatic. Um, and, uh, you know, just all I want to do is just get home, get, get to sleep. So I get home and uh, I drive back and uh, the wife understands that I'm not very good. And so they take me to the uh, neurologist on the Monday and I get checked out by him and I get a, another perfectly diagnosed concussion uh, on the HIA3. And they figure, well, we're not going to play you in the, in the top 14 semifinal this weekend, but um, we'll see. Uh, sorry, there was not the top 14. With, not the top 14 this weekend. We'll do a graduated return to play. So as opposed to having a return to play of six days to be clear the next Saturday, they did a 10-day return to play. So on the following Tuesday, I came back and, uh, and did another uh, diagnosis with the uh, neurologist. And, uh, you know, I wanted to play. I think he wanted me to play. The club wanted me to play. And everybody kind of gave me the green light saying you were, you were good to go. Even though if I look back at the test and looking at it with other neurologists, they're beside themselves in, in terms of disbelief that they, uh, they allowed me to keep playing. So, you know, I think it was a perfect storm of everybody wanting me to be okay, myself included. Um, and I was given the green light on the Tuesday. I trained two days uh, with the club. Then we left on the Thursday to uh, London to get ready for the game in Twickenham on the, on the Saturday. And in retrospect, I remember being really, really lethargic and unable to get excited about the, uh, the whole event. Um, I remember doing our walkthrough on the Saturday morning, you know, just out in the field next to the hotel. And we're just kind of wandering around doing our lineouts and walking through our plays and talking about things to watch out for. And, um, I just couldn't, couldn't get that kind of that buzz, you know, you normally get those butterflies in your guts and you're, uh, you're just trying to stay calm and focused and, and building up to the game. And so, uh, we went to the game and we played, did the warm up. still had this kind of uneasy feeling, uh, throughout the warm-up and I figured oh you know it's just just nerves and I'll be good to go and and then we get into the game and the first kind of 10-15 minutes are all right and then I I'm end up I get into a tackle where um their number eight Chris Masoi and uh their loose Chucky they come through the same hole so I kind of hit two guys I hit Chris and then with Chucky behind um and like tackle like low shoulder in right under the right under the ball like you kind of textbook tackle and i i finish on my ass and i remember looking up seeing lights and stars and going what the hell just happened and um the referee was near me i think it was Najones. He, he he tapped me on the, on the on the shoulder saying you know calling for our uh, physio saying there's been a head injury so that was really good on him uh they took me out for an hia um I went through the HIA. The, this was a, a second doctor because that year we had two doctors uh, working with us uh, that season. So the uh, the second doctor deemed uh, uh, that I passed my HIA one. I was put back on the field again, uh, kept playing. Obviously, I wanted to keep playing as well. Um, so I went off, caught the HIA, went back on the field, um, had another head collision uh, in the second half of the game. Uh, just a head-on-head kind of, uh, you know, one guy running an in, an inline and I, I was trying to get in underneath him. We just kind of clashed heads, like just an accident. And, uh, I, I fell to the ground and I was down on the ground about three to three, you know, four or five seconds. 
and uh, blood streaming out of my head again. And uh, the physio got to me, held me down. Said, "You're not. You're coming off. You're coming off. You've uh, you've hit your head again." So they walked me off. And uh, in the change room, I was uh, I was getting stitched back up, and I started to feel really nauseous, uh, which was quite bizarre for me because I don't I don't ever get nauseous. I don't ever get you know bad bad stomach stomach. I don't mind flying. I don't mind roller coasters or anything like that. Uh, I started to feel really really bad. And anyway, I started uh, I started puking in the uh, in the in the garbage can next to the doctor. Um, you know I teammate there the the bag man there the doctor there everybody kind of questioning whether it was a good idea to, for me to go back out and uh myself i wanted to go because clearly it's a it's a final um and you know a lot of times when you puke you get that adrenaline rush you feel you feel a hell of a lot better so i wanted to get back out there and um and he he let me go so i went out and i finished the game and uh and that kind of started after finishing the game, and luckily nothing else happened in terms of, you know, major major head head knocks. I uh, I came back off at the end, and unfortunately we lost, and uh, really really disappointed. But um, the biggest thing for me was, uh, you know, I just had this over over this this ringing in my head, and felt really really tired. The aftermatch, uh, saw my parents, my wife, my dad was uh, beside himself. My wife even more so. She saw how I'd come back out two different times and she went after the doctor and all the rest of it. It was, uh, it was, it was a bit of a scene. Anyway, we ended up flying home and, uh, it started about 10 days of not being able to sleep. Um, I was a bit of a monster at home. I couldn't deal with uh, light noise. Couldn't have the kids around me. Um, and, uh, and the, the club kind of had just, there was no call or no worry as to whether, you know, everything was okay. Um, so I, uh, I'd started, um, working with a neurologist, uh, independently to kind of recover and see, uh, see what would happen. And, uh, and with the team neurologist as well, cause I just wanted a second opinion, finished through my, uh, my HA2, HA3 and the, I started getting back to training to see if I could keep going, but uh, I couldn't do anything. Like I couldn't get my heart rate up. I couldn't do anything. I was really, really in a bad way. Um, so I took about two months off, three months in total, um, until I went back to Canada with the Canadian team and I uh, got two different, uh, neurologist reports on, uh, on whether I could, I could really just play again. And, uh, I got a green light from them in Canada, which were totally unbiased. So, uh, I figured it was, uh, it was good to go, uh, for the, for the world cup in 2015. Do you still feel any of those effects now? Um, I don't think so. Um, there's there's times where you know there's maybe lost train of thought, um, maybe some elocution problems between French and English. But um, you know, I I I like to think I'm 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 fully recovered. I hope. Um, I don't know what what the future holds because um, you know I've definitely done a lot of research onto it um, with friends of mine who've played contact sports. Definitely a lot of my, my buddies who play hockey, NHL guys that have that have dealt with some pretty bad trauma, and they're uh, and they're using uh, a lot of different products, um, you know, that are available over here to to help um, you know recover. Um, but um, you know, I'm I'm not too sure. The future will will, will tell. Um, whether there's a CT problem, whether there's other, other problems like that. Um, but, um, I think the biggest, the biggest problem for me was, you know, coming back from the world cup and seeing 
during my uh, my two weeks stand down after the World Cup, where everybody had that two weeks uh, recovery, um, seeing that the the same thing that had happened to me at the fall at the end of the the 2015 season was still happening uh, at the beginning of the 2015-16 season in Clermont, and uh, I I just <laughs> I, I blew up. I, I sent a letter internally to the general manager. I I talked with the doctors and the coaches, saying this is ridiculous. You guys are <laughs> running guys through the ringer. It's um, it's uh, irresponsible to uh, disregard uh, head injuries uh, like this and put guys on like five, six minutes after they've, uh, they've gone through an HIA. Um, you know, I've never understood how world rugby can let that go and that on world rugby's laws, it says if there's a suspected concussion, the player has to leave the field definitively. But then the professional entities have said, well, no, no, we know better. We'll put them through an HIA. And then after doing the HIA one, you can come back on the field and then doing the HI two and three, you can then play six days later. To me, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. So Claremont are the first club to have legal action taken against them over failing to protect the player from head injuries. Um, you were the person yeah. who took that legal action against them. As a player who gave 11 years to the club, did the Claremont fans, players, employees treat you differently after taking that legal action? Yeah, some did. Some did. The uh, the majority of fans uh, were entirely supportive because they saw what was happening as well. Um, Clermont's done very well uh, in public relations to push other narratives as them trying to show that they're being proactive around the problem, such as their S100 uh, blood protein research. Um, they do a lot of work with Neurovision, which is a, uh, a company that runs a neuro tracker uh, uh, system, which basically eight balls following them in a, in a, in a room to try and, uh, you know, promote um, good uh, vision, uh, peripheral vision and, uh, and reactions in, uh, in rugby so that there's less instance of uh, head injuries. So they have been proactive in certain uh, aspects, but when it comes down to actually taking care of the player, they're, uh, they're, they're really, really lacking as are a lot of teams in, uh, in France. <clears throat> um, you know, that's, that's where for me, uh, we decided to to go the legal the legal action way because um, the rules just weren't being uh, weren't being adhered to. Um, you know, guys getting continually put through the ringer, which I understand it's professional rugby. That's uh, that's part of it. You know, that's part of part of why the guys get paid. But um, at the same time, there's 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 due care that needs to be uh, adhered to, and uh, they definitely weren't doing that. Do you feel enough is being done to? combat concussion in the game um well i think you know we're trying to be proactive we're trying to make things uh better it's extremely difficult because it's a contact sport and it's going to happen um the big thing is just the the education around it um that's why we set up the rugby safety network my wife and i in france because we saw that if it was that broken at the professional level Imagine how bad it was at the amateur level, playing every Sunday or every Saturday in the mini rugby, in the youth rugby, in the in the in the old boys rugby or the social rugby uh, in the in the villages around the country, and it was uh, it was a hundred times worse. Uh, I'd gone down and I'd seen 
many different people reach out to me around stories of guys playing, getting knocked out, keep playing, getting knocked out a couple more times, and then they're on the piss having beers at the end. And, you know, unfortunately, in the last four years, like five kids have died in uh, in France playing rugby, two through concussion and three through uh, one through uh, breaking his neck, a poor kid in, uh, in Paris, and then a couple kids with major thoracic shock. So, you know, is the education out there? Well, it's clearly not. Um, you know, the, the major thing I saw from the uh, the FFR and uh, from Provail, the players union in in France, uh, was uh, don't gamble when you uh, don't gamble on rugby uh, as as a rugby player. Which to me, that's not really a big problem. You know, people are dying playing a sport. There's clearly the problem, and none of that education around head injuries or injury prevention or really more how to deal with head injuries and other major injuries uh, such as that was was available, and it was uh, it was one of the, the big drivers for my wife and I to get RSN off the ground. How are you finding working with Rugby Safety Network? Well, we've uh, we've had to take hiatus now of moving back to Canada, uh, as uh, it was originally based in in Geneva, in Switzerland, for work in France. We did some great initiatives uh, throughout France with uh, with different rugby clubs, with the youth aspect of uh, of rugby clubs where where we were living. Um, we did a lot of uh, you know under twelve tournaments. We did the Saint Devault tournament in Monaco last year, where I had uh, teams from around the world who. Uh, you know, would come to our booth and get a really quick kind of uh, um, education session on, uh, on on concussion. And it was really good to see a lot of the, the teams uh, really knew what was going on. And then worryingly, and mostly the French teams, unfortunately, uh, had no idea. You know, you ask kids, what's concussion? None of them put their hands up. You know, nobody knows because they haven't talked about it. And it's uh, something that needs to be talked about, especially at that level. You know, if you get a head injury, well, your your buddies need to protect you, and you need to you need to sit this one out. Um, but you know, there there was no real kind of discussion around that at all. So, you know, the work that we had, we had done over the last uh, four or five years was um, was mainly around that, around educating young players uh, to the the dangers, you know, the the pre, during, and the post uh, things to do uh, after head injuries. And uh, we worked on tackle technique as well because that's a huge part of it, making sure all kids have mouth guards, you know, making sure that you've got that technical side of things patted down and and really just trying to uh, make people more aware so that they can uh, make the right decisions around an injury such as uh, a concussion. You played for 15 years with the national team. How much development have you seen in that time in rugby in Canada? Well, I've seen an enormous amount. Enormous amount. It's been uh, it's been amazing how uh, how how fast uh, Canadian rugby has progressed with so little money and or you know kind of infrastructure around around rugby in itself. We're pretty far down the pecking order in terms of other sports in North America, um, but. You know, Canadians are are, are very very uh, very very good at finding solutions to, to problems with uh, with you know just using uh, our diff- ingenuity and, uh, and and problem solving. Um, you know, you look at uh, the women's team who are severely underfunded um, and are they're top three in the world um, in sevens and in fifteens. Um, you know, that, that just shows that, you know, there's some great athletes here, some really good rugby players and they've, uh, they've got, uh, they've got the, uh, the will to win and they just, they find a way to make, 
make things uh, as best as possible. So, you know, that's really progressed year after year where people are trying to find solutions to different problems. We don't have too much high-level competition, but uh, with the Major League Rugby uh, now in its, uh, its third year, unfortunately it's canceled right now, but, um, you know, we're starting to get some a decent standard of professional rugby in North America. Um, the Sevens being an Olympic sport is, is huge for rugby in North America both south of the border and up here uh, because uh, any Olympic sport uh, in Canada or United States gets a lot of money put at it so that uh, they can uh, try to be on the podium. Um, and, uh, you know, with, with those kind of things, like with the MLR, with the seven series, Vancouver and in Langford for the women, um, there's, uh, there's some really, really good things happening. You know, I, I'm now work with the, the federation and, uh, there's some re- a really good core group of, of coaches, younger and, uh, and experienced guys who, uh, who work extremely hard to make it, to make it better. And, uh, you know, seeing how we've slid over the last 15 years, it's, uh, it's, um, it couldn't have come, uh, sooner um, because uh, we've got a, a lot of work to do here locally. Of the four World Cups you played in, if you had to pick one as your most special, which would you pick? Um, well, that's, that's really tough. I don't, I don't think I can choose one over another. Um, each one was uh, very, very, I was very, very fortunate to be selected in, in one, let alone four. Um, and to be uh, to be playing in, in in all four was uh, was a huge achievement, and I'm I'm very proud of you know of getting to that to that point. It's important to remember the people that helped me, you know, my wife, my family, to, to supported me through those years, getting getting to uh, to those kind of milestones. But um, you know, everyone was was special. You know, my first one in Australia, um, then in in France, where you know I'd already started a, a decent professional career in France, uh, going down to New Zealand where I played when I was younger. And then, uh, again, in England, uh, in 2015 was, uh, you know, each one had their, their special moments, you know, captaining my country, uh, against Ireland, uh, in, uh, in, in Wales in the 2015 world cup was a huge honor. Um, but, um, you know, there's little, little bits of, of everyone that I'll, uh, I'll savor definitely to the end of my days. You're now the head coach of Pacific Pride and you actually coached all throughout your career as well. What aspects of coaching do you enjoy most? Um, I like I like all of it. You know, um, I've, I've always enjoyed sharing my experiences to, to help guys excel uh, faster than maybe they would have. Um, and, uh, you know, trying to create a good culture of, uh, of our guys who work hard and, and, and want to play hard and fast, uh, which to me is, uh, is, is the modern game. Um, looking at different technical aspects. Uh, I do like, uh, the, the defensive side of things. So, um, we do, uh, we do do a lot of banging bodies on a, on a Tuesday, especially with, uh, with my boys, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have come back and, and, everything's kind of come full circle where I used to play in the pride and now uh, I'm now head coach of it. And then uh, assisting uh, Kingsley Jones with, uh, with the national team in the, in the international windows is, uh, is a huge honor for me as well. So, um, you know, it's going to be great to learn off, uh, learn off him and, uh, and uh, just keep uh, honing my, my coaching skills as a, as I did as, as a player. You were director of rugby for province in the D2 and you guided them to promotion. How was that experience? That was that was a really really good learning experience. Um, you know, I I kind of gone 
maybe a little bit faster than the music, as they say in France, uh, where I uh, was player coach in Oyenax uh, when we were in the Pro D2. We won the Pro D2 and got uh, promoted to the top 14. Um, at that time, I, I think my body was uh, my body was finished. I just couldn't recover uh, in in uh, in the proper speed uh, anymore at that time to, to keep playing. Definitely not at a top 14 level. And the club were uh, were very good in supporting me uh, into going into coaching full time. So uh, I, I started coaching the forwards uh, in Oyenax uh, the year before, um, and that was a really really good um, another you know learning experience. Uh, it was unfortunate how in both those instances in Oyenax and in Provence, uh, I spent a lot more time working on uh, the political side of things and the actual rugby side of things, which uh, unfortunately was um, you know where I, I got most of my learnings uh, in terms of you know how to pull a knife out of one's own back is uh, is quite quite difficult. But um, do you you know, I, I definitely had that. that a little bit. Sorry. Do you want do you want to tell us about that a little bit or? Yeah, yeah. So I, I worked with a guy named uh, Adrian Buonanato in uh, in, in Oyenax who uh, had come down from uh, from Stade Francais and basically had uh, sold himself as being uh, a forwards coach of Stade Francais when uh, uh, they uh, they won the um, they won a few uh, few championships uh, and. Um, it was really uh, Simon Raluy and uh, Gonzalo Casada that ran the team back then, and uh, he came in two days a week and did a few skill sessions and what have you. Um, but he'd sold himself off to the uh, president of Oyo as uh, as the forwards coach of Stefan I'll say how the president of Oyo didn't look into this, I do not know. So anyway, we get this joker show up who. Uh, to be to be honest, he could speak a good game, but he had zero technical knowledge of any type of high level rugby. So that's hence why, you know, when I moved there in uh, in 2016, it was more of a player coach role where, you know, a few of the leaders in the group basically said, you know, this guy hasn't got a fucking clue, so we'll just kind of do our own thing and we'll just keep keep things uh, keep things quiet. I then started working with him the the following year with. Uh, Irish guy, Mike Prendergast, who uh, Mike had a lot of time for him, really, really good technical coach, um, really, uh, really um, well, well thought out and, uh, and organized. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed working with Mike. Uh, unfortunately, we had uh, Adrian as uh, then the director of rugby or head coach, um, who was in a, another office <laughs> and he would kind of pull in guys one by one. Uh, Mike would go in and they talk about the attack and then I'd go in and we talk about the forwards, but there was no real collaborative stuff. And, you know, we had crazy things like we'd, we'd all talk on the team on the Tuesday and he wouldn't, didn't want to promote the team until like a Thursday or a Friday. And, and Mike and I are looking at each other going like, hold on, how can everybody like work on our combinations and our lineups and our plays which they don't know like a few days ahead of time who who's playing on the weekend um so we push that and you say oh well we'll get our games going our team's going on a tuesday now but then by thursday he'd switch everything without telling us and he lied to everybody and lied to me and lied to mike and then tell everybody it was somebody else's fault and it was uh it was pretty interesting just dealing with somebody that was absolutely rotten from the inside out so um we had a bit of a, a crisis meeting as <laughs> they like to do in france and uh you know we uh, we sat around a table and uh, presidents were clearly in his corner um they got quite uh quite worked up uh in the fact that uh, they saw us 
having this meeting as a coup, but uh, it by no means was it was a coup. It was uh, it was a crisis meeting because we were in crisis. We were uh, we were losing games uh, left, right, and center. Uh, we couldn't find a, a unified theme to kind of push together as a, as a coaching staff and uh, and create a better culture where people were working hard, being accountable. And uh, there was some, some real honesty uh, in the group. There was zero honesty in the group. And for me, when you're in a, we're in a rugby group and there's no honesty, well, you're not going to be able to go very far. And that was clearly what was happening. Um, so, you know, we had uh, our, our SNC coach who was a military guy who had been with the club for about 17 years, started by standing up, looking across the table and saying, I can't work with this guy. He's dishonest. I did the same thing, standing, sitting next to him, looking him straight in the eye saying, nobody can work with you. I can't work with you. You are dishonest. We can't work together. Um, and everybody, unfortunately, had said in the weeks leading up to it that, uh, you know, if, if one of us goes, we all go. And I was the only one that kept my word. So um, I ended up leaving the club uh, midway uh midway through the season because uh i couldn't uh, i couldn't deal with working with somebody that was that dishonest because uh, that's I've, I have certain principles and that's i'm not going to stand for it so i uh, i told the president uh well listen if you if you don't want me uh, part of this group and you're, you're going to keep somebody who's dishonest and uh and openly lying to everybody i i don't want to be a part of it so uh, I stepped away and uh, was uh, was very fortunate to uh, a few few weeks later uh, get an opportunity in Provence, where um, the president there uh, was looking for uh, a, a new director of rugby, um, and uh, you know it was a huge step up for me. Um, but uh, I felt that I was uh, but I was ready for it. The biggest mistake I made was not coming in with uh, with a whole team. I came in with a with an ex number nine that I had played with a little bit the previous year in Oyanax. And, um, you know, basically uh, spent the majority of my year putting out political fires left, right, and center while trying to keep a, uh, a good core group of players uh, uh, playing some, some good rugby. And, uh, you know, we did, we did all right. We finished ninth um, at the end of the season after our first year of being up from the third division and uh, in, a, in a team of – in a group of 15, you know, mid-table, ninth, lower to mid-table is, is not that bad. You know, considering uh, where we had come from in terms of infrastructure, in terms of training principles, in terms of, you know, load monitoring, they really had none of that. Um, they were not very professional whatsoever, and we kind of dragged them into the professional era. And uh, the players responded, responded really, really well, and they started playing some really good rugby. So, um, you know, it went really, really well. But, um, you know, as things kind of progressed uh, throughout the year, I saw some writings on the wall and the president wanted to uh, make me kind of a director of rugby and then move uh, Fabian Seabray, who was our attack coach at that time, to uh, the kind of the head coach role. And uh, I still wanted to be on the field. You know, I was still a young coach. For me to go into a director of rugby role at, at that age, you know, 30, 39, was, uh, was, I, I don't think it was a good move for me. Um, I prefer being on, on the field and doing less of the political stuff and uh, shaking hands with partners and what have you. Not that I don't enjoy that, but uh, I definitely wanted to be more uh, on the rugby side. So uh, this was at the same time that uh, I'd been talking a lot with Canada and uh, about us getting the, uh, the academy uh, team back up uh, online because um, we've definitely seen how much uh, you know Canada had been sliding down the, the world rankings for the last 15 years. And I think that a large part of that was because they, the national team didn't have any resources in terms of players coming through to push those established guys out. 
you know, I could take myself as a perfect example. I shouldn't have been playing 30, 37 years old international rugby. I should have had a, a young up and coming second row back row guy that was trying to push me out of the way. Like I did to uh, two guys in the past. Cause you know, that's, that's what happens. There's progression and there's ascension and people move on. Um, but, uh, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't, that wasn't the case for the last 15 years. Hence why we thought getting the pride program back online. So, so, crucial in uh in helping uh get the national team back uh to where it once was so i took the uh i took the role with uh with rugby canada we moved the the family back to uh, back to canada last summer so it was uh it was kind of a a really fast ending to a long career in france you know almost 20 years and um you know we're very very happy to be back in canada now especially with the the global pandemic and to be in a in a great place uh here on the west coast do you ever get the itch now when you're coaching to want to join in? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. I do join in a little bit here and there. Uh, I've, I've been in a few scrum sessions, a few line-out defense sessions, because just because we've been down numbers. But, um, you know, it's uh, I, I don't go as far as to putting a mouth guard on, so I, I try to keep it pretty civil. Well, listen, Jamie, I just want to say thanks a million for coming on the pod today. It was great to listen to you and have you share your experience. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Happy to happy to share, and uh, I hope uh, hope everybody enjoyed it. And uh, you know, by all by all means, uh, you can uh, you can abuse me or promote promote me on, <laughs> on uh, with a, with a Twitter later on. I'm sure I'll get a few a uh, few happy uh, Paul Connell uh, you know uh, comments because I I know I know I normally do from the Irish from the Irish supporters, but. Uh, no, I, I understand. You can't, you can't touch a natural treasure. No, I wasn't going to bring that up today, so uh, we leave it there. We leave it there. Um, no, we've we've left it there. We've left it there. We're having some good chats. He's a good, he's a good man, Paulie. Well, listen, folks. Thanks a million for listening. That's it for today.